Welcome to the Business of Learning, the Learning Leaders Podcast from TrainingIndustry.com. Hi, and welcome to the Business of Learning Podcast. I'm Scott Rutherford here at Training Industry with my co-host, Taryn Ace, the Managing Editor of TrainingIndustry.com. Hi. Recently, Training Industry's research team released a series of reports that explored the critical importance of learning and development in helping companies manage risk. Today on the podcast, we're discussing risk management through safety training, how to make it more engaging, and how it can support the role of learning and development as critical to the business. And we should mention this episode of The Business of Learning is sponsored by the Certified Professional in Training Management Program. Hi, I'm Brandy, and I'm the Learning Program Administrator for the Certified Professional in Training Management Program. The CPTM program was designed to convey the essential competencies you need to manage a training organization. And when you become a CPTM, you gain access to alumni resources like monthly peer roundtables and a full registration to the Training Industry Conference and Expo. If you start today, you can earn the CPTM credential in as little as two months. To learn more, visit cptm.trainingindustry.com. Today on the podcast, we're talking about safety training with our guests, Bridget Wilder, the Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Safety Officer for the City of Memphis, and Fred Stawitz, who works in regulatory compliance for Kinder Morgan, Inc. Bridget, Fred, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Bridget, can you start just by introducing yourself to us and telling us a little bit about your work? Well, I, uh, my, as you mentioned, my title is Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Safety, and I work with the City of Memphis. Uh, we have close to 8,000 employees, and part of what my area does is that we educate our employees about the importance of workplace safety and that safety is a responsibility of all of us and not just the human resources area, and we focus on as well making safety about our culture and who we are so that safety is not thought of as a program or initiative, but again, rather as who we are as an organization wanting to provide a safe, risk-free environment for our employees. All right, and uh, Fred, what about you? What, what do you do at, um, at Kinder Morgan? Well, actually, at Kinder Morgan, I work in regulatory compliance, and, and I'm not uh, a representative of Kinder Morgan for, the, for purposes here. I write research on... Uh, Factors that impact in, in the workplace environment on uh, safety, productivity, customer service, and particularly sustainable profitability. I've worked in aerospace and uh, energy industries, and my background's in, in setting up technical training programs. I've also um, operated a small publishing house that brings to light voices that are, are of benefit to the world. Well, great. We're glad to have you here um, on this episode. Um, let's maybe, if I can start off um, by setting a little bit of a broad framework, which is to say that safety training and compliance training are sometimes grouped together. Um, maybe let's talk about how they're different. Uh, I mean, do you think about compliance training and safety training as uh, two parts of the same whole, or should we really think of them separately? I'll start out. I, I I think of compliance training as, as pretty much the baseline of uh, there's a mandate to do either training or uh, evaluate uh, employees uh, on a particular um, process or skill or um, a particular performance that you want out of, uh, out of the, the workforce that the um, uh, regulatory agency is mandating. And so I, I see that as um, you meet that, that mandate uh, pretty much. That mandate may be on or off target for actually providing a more safe environment or not. Um, often it is on target, but sometimes uh, not so much. 
uh, safety training then, there's safety training in terms of regulatory mandates also, but if you're talking about safety training in terms of how to provide uh, a safer work environment for employees, how to uh, ensure that, that bad things don't happen in that environment, then that's more up to the company to um, provide a higher standard of uh, delivering competencies. Thanks, Fred. And Bridget, you spoke a little bit about uh, building a, a, a safety culture. Um, yeah. How does that how does that work when you're when you're um, um, doing the the maybe the must do of compliance training uh, mm-hmm. with with, with uh, maybe you know there there's a mixture of what you have to do as, as Fred was just saying and, and maybe what you'd want to do proactively. Um, how do you mm-hmm. how do you bring those two together in, into into a culture of an organization? Well, we view them as being co-joined. Uh, the, again, the compliance, as said before, is regulatory driven. It's the baseline standard. The safety training is really a communication or making aware your employee base about what that standard is so that they can uh, operate and behave in a way that creates that safety in the work environment. And I think that the way you inculcate it into your culture uh, is that you have to walk the talk every day and ensure that each level of the organization understands that there is a role that each of us play in ensuring that the work environment is safe uh, because our goal is that we want to create a positive health and safety culture where it becomes second nature. So I think if you're talking about it all the time, not just from a compliance perspective, but that we are wanting to do this to show that as an employer, we care about you and uh, we want you to be safe in the work environment, but it's a partnership. And that's how it becomes part of the culture. So drilling down a little bit more, uh, what do the safety training programs cover at your organizations? Speaking generally in, in uh, oil and gas, they, they usually cover the regulatory mandates of, of uh, spectrum from DOT to OSHA to um, uh, environmental uh, issues. Right. And, and for the city of Memphis, uh, because we are um, a city government, our employee base ranges from uh, public safety employees, which is inclusive of uh, police, fire, police dispatchers, office administration, uh, people that work out uh, among the public doing maintenance and, and general services, those type of things. So our safety training has to cover a, a broad base, anything from confined space, emergency action plans, slip and falls, because we touch so many different areas that have risk to it, uh, it, it just requires us to have a diverse training beyond the uh, required things that we have to do for regulatory compliance. Okay, so I and I want to uh, maybe address um, uh, sort of the elephant of the room here. Uh, when we're talking about training uh, for safety purposes and for uh, uh, compliance purposes, there's a uh, uh, I, I will safely say it's an overgeneralization, but it's very often we'll hear complaints uh, uh, that pertain to mandatory training for 
for employees, um, particularly about safety training, that it's boring uh, and and uh, that there's resistance to it. Um, and those are obviously problems because uh, in, from the perspective of the training organization, um, you have learner resistance, which can lead to lower engagement and ultimately you know, less effective programs. So um, I'd, I'd like maybe to get your thoughts about, um, you know, the, the challenges of making compliance and safety training engaging. How do you make that, how do you uh, address that uh, challenge um, in, in your uh, organizations? And, and Bridget, why don't I uh, throw that to you first? Well, that is certainly true. Whether it's compliance or anything that's related to a human resources aspect, you, you do get that feedback that, oh, I got to go to that. That's going to be kind of boring to me. Uh, but we, what we have found throughout our trainings that people learn more effectively uh, if they're able to engage and be interactive in the training um, because they learn better from doing versus just watching us facilitate. So we provide opportunities for them to interact with us through uh, roundtable discussions, peer-on-peer uh, teachings. Uh, we have quarterly meetings where they can bring the topics of concern to them, to us, and we come up with solutions. We also do one-on-ones. So we try to offer a variety of ways for them to uh, get the necessary training but also for us to comply with the, the regulations and the laws because there are so many fines associated with not being in compliance, but at the same time, you don't want people to feel like they're memorizing something. You want it to be inculcated into their daily uh, behavior. And so by having them do the engagement uh, of interactive participation, that certainly helps. And those those are great uh techniques and suggestions, One, kind of at a bottom line, if you can connect the employee with their motivation. That the, the, I don't want to be here is that they're seeing, not seeing a direct connection with what they're going to learn in that class, if anything, with the job or their needs. And if you can make that connection, then you can tap into their motivation and then, then that's what makes learning very effective is, is if the learner themselves are motivated to, to acquire the knowledge and, and uh, competencies. Is it, is it easier to make that connection when you're in sort of a high consequence environment? I mean, obviously, the, you know, I think, you know, Fred, you're talking in the oil and gas industry. If there's, a, you know, a, a, I, I'm going to wager to say everyone's uh, uh, acutely aware of of, uh, of what uh, um, OSHA <laughs> what issues that can be caused by non-compliance. And 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 Bridget, I also you're 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 uh, you're representing a, a, a you know a government entity, and uh, there there's certainly um, potential high consequence uh, interactions between your team and the public. So so I mean, does is is that a motivator? Sort of the fear factor of of what happens if things go wrong. I think that's kind of a, a, a small motivator that that um, probably isn't isn't nearly as effective as what Bridges was talking about with the, with engaging with the the individuals in uh, in seeing what their questions are and kind of making it personal for their um, experience. Uh, right. right. And and I, and I I certainly agree with that because as I mentioned we have public safety related roles such as fire and police and police dispatchers. When you go into that type of field, you have a certain level of expectation that there's risk. Um, and I think that you got to have a certain level of fear to even do that type of work. Uh, but at the same time, 
learn the techniques to stay as safe as you can, because your goal is to be able to serve the public and to do the best that you can, but also to remain healthy and safe while you're doing it. So I, I think there's an influencer, uh, but their motivation is to be able to stay healthy, to be able to, to serve the public and to uh, be there for their families. Something that's a little bit relative to that is what some organizations are starting to do is assign employees in terms of their traits. In, in uh, a high-risk environment, you'd want a, an employee that has a, a tendency toward not taking risks. And if you can match those things up, then you're more able to also match up their motivation for, for learning in that, in that arena. Right. Uh, how, how do your programs uh, engage with your customers or your clients? Well, with us being uh, city government, um, the public are our customers. And so uh, by us being able to do our jobs and have environments where they are being cognizant of the, the hazards in the environment uh, and how they go about doing their job is going to impact not only their internal employees and peers, but it's going to impact the public. So, for example, we have water treatment plants. Going back to the police dispatchers, when they get that emergency call, uh, they have to be able to remain calm and to be able to maintain their own stress levels to deal with unexpected reactionary things without being reactionary reactionary themselves. Uh, so we are constantly engaging with the public given that we are city government. And so the, the employees that we have in each of our roles, we want them to understand the impact that they have not only on the external customer, but on internal customers as well, uh, because we have to be cognizant at all times to be as safe as we possibly can. So how do you um, look at, and, 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 and Bridget and Fred, I guess this, you, know, you can both uh, respond from your perspectives, but how do you uh, look at uh, um, training that in general terms here is intended to mitigate risk um, and how do you measure success? I mean, is, is that something, and is that something that, that um, you have to have uh, cooperation from other parts of the organization, uh, say office of, uh, you know, your uh, corporate counsel, legal counsel, operations, or, or other uh, maybe city departments in, in the case of you, Bridget? Well, we uh, measure success based on two categories, one being proactive measures where we try to determine safety performance prior to a loss or potential event. Uh, so we're always trying to do a safety audit and then meeting with leadership to identify what we identify as potential hazards that need corrective measures. And then we have reactive measures that determine performance uh, based upon loss events so that we can look at both of those types of measures, whether they be proactive or reactive, and determine what, what can we do in terms of forecasting and implementing initiatives to minimize or eliminate that risk. So with that in mind, sometimes those measures that we're wanting to implement are going to cost money. Uh, sometimes those measures are going to mean change management across the organization. So it's really critical that we do have the support uh, of leadership as well as uh, employees and as well as our uh, our customers that we're serving to be able to make that happen because change, as we all know, is not easily grasped or accepted. But when you're talking about risk management, 
uh, it goes from a I hope to do to a must do. So you need support to make that happen. And, and Fred, what's been your experience in terms of uh, um, engaging uh, other, you know, other stakeholders in, in our organization in, uh, um, in in helping to measure the effectiveness of of, uh, of uh, compliance training? One of the biggest challenges in terms of, of training in general is kind of a, a knee jerk reaction from uh, upper management that uh, training solves all issues. That if there's an issue, okay, put together a class, train some people, and that's going to solve the issue. And I, I would separate the training from the issue in the manner of training provides people with competencies. And if you provide them with the proper competencies, then you can guide their behavior to correct an issue in the workplace. If you do training you've got to make sure that what you're providing them are the competencies that will correct that problem. You could theoretically provide a training class that provides a certain set of competencies that have nothing to do or have little to do or won't impact what the actual problem is. So one of the a discussion I have quite frequently in uh, past organizations is in terms of that's not going to solve your problem. That's a, a, a management issue. It's an authority, a worker management type of situation. And let's think in this other direction, putting a training program, putting a training class together to address that won't have the impact that you think it will. Right. And, and I think on, on top of that, um, you have to start with uh, communicating with leaders where they are, and, and many times with leadership, even though they know safety is important, you have to speak about safety and compliance from a business priority perspective. Uh, so being able to tie in what they are trying to achieve from a business priority uh, and tying that into the impact that if we don't have safety measures in place and not just training once a year, but constantly looking at it like we do any type of uh, business value proposition, uh, then we're not going to be able to achieve those business priorities. Uh, so I think changing the mindset by meeting leadership uh, where they are is going to greatly uh, move away the concept of um, it's a set it and forget it once a year training to making it be a priority and tying it to being impactful of us as an organization being able to achieve goals. And that's, that means the training uh, professionals need to be a strategic partner with, uh, with the management group and, and have an understanding of where they want to drive the organization and use training as a, a change uh, tool to help move it in that direction. Yeah, that's so often a theme that we talk about here, the whole notion of strategic alignment and, and the importance of, of, of making sure that you're having, having a conversation uh, at the strategic level first before you, you then move into tactics of, of training programs. So that's, uh, I think that, that, uh, that right. observation is a, uh, you know, a common pain point for sure across all uh, learning and development. Yeah, safety training, uh, you know, by its nature has a lot of changes that have to happen to it due to, you know, changes in laws and regulations. So how do you keep your training content up to date uh, with those regula regulatory changes? One mechanism is, is to tie the content of your training 
to both the subject matter expert and to your policies and procedures. So when those change, then that will flag and drive a, a change and update in the, um, in the training content. The, the other thing I think it's important to do um, on top of the policy and the training being linked, uh, if you have the bandwidth and the, necess and the necessary staff assign uh, different individuals to identify and keep up with those changes, because as you said, the regulatory changes are constantly changing. Uh, so you have to have more than a single source of knowledge to be able to keep track as well as to be able to implement the necessary compliance. So in addition to assigning someone to handle different areas and to stay abreast and update those policies and so forth, um, there, are, there are some free tools that you can utilize. Uh, for example, you know, going on to the OSHA website, uh, the Department of Labor has an OSHA newsletter called OSHA Quick Takes that gives you a high-level overview of what's going on within the OSHA environment various industries and how they are applying uh, OSHA regulatory standards. But it also gives you the legal perspective of when organizations don't comply, the penalties that they face. Uh, keeping in touch with your networking organizations, such as National Safety Council, uh, if you are a member, they're providing information about different compliance regulatory issues. So there are a variety of things that you can do uh, to stay abreast of what's going on within the regulatory uh, area. And if you package the training in a more modular fashion, even though you may deliver several modules modules at one time, but if you package it that way, it's, it's uh, easier to do the updates. Very good tips. And uh, we'll try to put a link to the um, OSHA Quick Takes uh, resource in the show notes for this episode of the of the podcast so people can uh, find that uh, more, more easily. Um, but speaking about um, uh, sort of keeping up with what's new, um, uh, wanted to get your thoughts on how emerging technologies are affecting uh, safety training. Um, I, I've certainly seen, you know, the emergence of uh, augmented reality as being uh, a tool being used in, in, uh, um, in, in training programs and wondered if, if you could uh, uh, share some thoughts on the potential for tools like virtual reality, augmented reality, or even um, artificial intelligence as it pertains to uh, safety and compliance? Well, in terms of, of uh, the digital technologies, first of all, implementing them into the workplace is somewhat disruptive. And so if you don't have a well-tuned uh, training effort in place to elevate the skills of the workers that are intended to utilize those technologies, then there's there going to cause more of a disruption than, than would be necessary if you had uh, uh, the training effort on top of that. In terms of utilizing them as tools for training, uh, the VR is particularly, the virtual reality is particularly interesting in terms of recreating a entire workspace and letting the individual operate within that workspace, learn where things are, learn how to operate um, different equipment and stuff. Um, some of the um, um, fine-tuning of, of uh, the touch and operated equipment is, is still in, in flux in, in that arena. But the virtual reality is, is going to um, – is altering the way that uh, certain training is done and making that training more realistic in terms of uh, of the, um, the connection to, um, to the job. 
And then the augmented reality is an interesting factor in terms of actual operations in that it's uses the goggles with the uh, kind of heads-up display type of thing that, that you might have seen on, on uh, an aircraft. It allows um, communication of the individual with the, um, with the environment and uh, flagging of hazardous spaces before they move into those hazardous spaces, uh, information about the equipment if they, if they need that simply by looking at the equipment sometimes. Uh, there's different ways of doing that with um, a... Um, a digital double and or tagging equipment, but it's the whole set of digital technologies is, is altering um, to a large degree uh, the way business is done and the way training um, has to operate to, um, to keep pace. Yeah, Bridget, I would imagine there there would be potential applications in 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 the government setting as well. We talked about uh, you know just uh, just taking the public safety staff example, mm-hmm. uh, where yeah. where you can use those tools to expose expose uh, first responders to to um, you know sort of high uh, high stakes scenarios uh, in a in a simulation or an immersive simulation before uh, before they have to encounter it in the real world. Right. And, and that's, that's a true uh, benefit for environments and, and entities such as us, because, as you just said, it allows you to take a, a high risk environment created in a safe environment, but yet also at the same time allow them to have learning transfer so that they know in advance uh, how they're going to react in a situation. So it, it, put, it allows them to react, but in a safe environment while at the same time transferring it to real-life scenarios that they could encounter in doing their work. And so that's a true benefit when you're looking at trying to teach employees about hazard identification, safety procedures, or emergency situations. Um, having that, rea- that virtual reality allows them to know how to react when they actually encounter it. But one thing I like to uh, always remind organizations that are thinking about utilizing AI or virtual reality, that they can't forget the importance of HI, uh, meaning human intelligence. Uh, AI is going to provide you great tools, but it's not going to replace the importance of the human factor in making analysis and making decisions. I kind of think of AI and virtual reality as... uh, sort of like the bionic man. Technology made uh, Steve Austin be better than he was before, and it gave him tools that allowed him to take what he could have done in the past to, to a higher level. But the important thing about it, it didn't take away his humanity. So we need artificial intelligence and virtual reality, but we have to balance that with the human factor. And we're quite a ways off before uh, artificial intelligence is going to uh, actually compete with human intelligence. What, where it is now is that, that artificial intelligence operates very well within a very confined uh, topic area. So if it's, if it's say, um, monitoring the temperature in a, in a building, then it can, it can home in on that and it can just uh, determine trends and, and drafts and all kind of different things going on with the temperature and the flow of air. But it doesn't cross boundaries very well. And that's what humans do. Humans can monitor the temperature. They can operate uh, equipment at the same time. They can carry on a conversation on the phone. They can multitask. And the artificial intelligence won't get there for another uh, few decades. 
What about the uh, the virtual and augmented reality? Is that uh, something that, that you're using? Is that something that you think is kind of still in the early stages? Where do you think we are with that? In established industries and in, in Western countries, the, the, uh, uh, it's starting to make encroachments into um, a large industry. But it's kind of in, in uh, somewhat predictable areas the, the, um, with the... Um, the goggles, particularly the, the uh, artificial reality goggles where, where you actually see through the goggle, but you have information that's, that's presented up on the, the, uh, up on the screen like on, would be appear on your glasses. That's probably the, the first um, technology that's really going to, to make a, a difference as far as employees notice. The artificial intelligence is, is making inroads, but that's kind of behind the scenes and, and in uh, in managing the big data sets that that um, uh, companies are gathering um, and, and looking at, at finding uh, increased if, uh, increased um, understanding of, of what that data can tell us. Bridget, what about in the government sector? Uh, do you think you know are virtual reality and augmented reality are these things uh, happening much yet, or or do you think that's still a ways away? Um, I think that it's something that's being considered now because within government entities and particularly with city government, um, the funding aspect of it, it can always be a challenge. Uh, but we also know in order to attract the talent and retain the talent that we need, we're going to have to move toward things such as artificial intelligence, data analytics, and the virtual reality because that's what the workforce is moving toward and what your future generations of employees are going to be expecting. Uh, so it's certainly something that we'll be able to utilize uh, in the future, how long it's going to take for us to be able to, to fully to embrace all of that technology, uh, that's yet to be seen. Interesting. So it's, it's a, talent or a talent attraction tool as well as a learning tool. Correct. And I'd, I'd also consider that 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 technology is workable, it's available, and the, the, um, the slowdown in implementation is not on the technology side, it's on the, uh, the user side of just understanding and being willing to pay for the implementation, realizing that implementation is going to cause some, kind, some type of, of disruption to processes. So it's a, a constant evaluation of if we, if we implement digital technologies in a particular area, What's the expense of that? What are we doing already? And what's the, what's the return on that, that expense or investment? And given that it's an emerging area, um, and I, I realize there's, there's always a, a, a build versus buy discussion when you're talking about uh, you know, building programs, but um, you know, how have you approached, have you approached uh, looking at it from, you know, is, it, is it in your view, is, it, is this an area where, where um, going to an outside vendor who's done it before has extra value, or is it uh, um, equally easy or, or expedient to, uh, to do it yourself? I think you'd always, at this point, always go to an outside vendor that, that you get so much more uh, experience and because there's going to be some kind of um, uh, testing of how do, we, how do we work it into this area, how do we make it work, how do we refine the efficiencies and those kind of things. And the, the, um, uh, you're going to get much more experience base from a from a vendor that's been doing that to in, in with a lot of customers than you are hiring an individual to set that up internally. That's right. a, a big enough effort that it, that it 
um, you really want that that level of knowledge. And I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, you, you want to be able to tap into that knowledge. You also want to be able to tap into that customer network. Because many times when you go to uh, a vendor, a third-party administrator, uh, they have opportunities for networking and training for their customer base. And so that way you can engage with others that are in similar industries or have utilized this uh, particular tool for some time. And they can help you kind of minimize some of the aha moments and setbacks that you might not might would have occurred if you tried doing it on your own because now you have a resource that you can touch base with and learn from those. Okay, and I wanted to mention for folks listening to this episode of the podcast, if you're uh, interested uh, to dive a little bit more deeply into uh, automation and uh, learning and development, um, you can go to uh, podcast uh, episode eight of the Business of Learning, uh, which focuses on that topic, and that uh, might be uh, related listening for you. Uh, so, but before we close, uh, Bridget and Fred, I was wondering if uh, if you could perhaps share a, a final thought for, um, for folks who are maybe just entering the, um, the compliance and safety arena. Um, we know that uh, in our uh, view of the industry, uh, people move into, uh, you know, there's a lot of fluidity between learning and development assignments. And uh, we, we, we often find that uh, people come to uh, trainingindustry.com who are new to their um, uh, particular uh, practice in, or new to the career entirely in some cases. So, so if, if, if you were talking to someone who was just assigned uh, uh, responsibility for a compliance or a safety training program, um, what, what advice would you give them? Uh, Bridget, maybe I'll, I'll let you have first uh, stab at that one. Um, I, I think that the most important thing that you can do is really two things. One, you need to learn the business uh, so that you understand the stakeholders that you're serving and the priorities that they have. And then once you know that, tie that back to what the regulations require within each of those groups. Uh, because within organizations, you can have multiple departments that have different, not only business needs, but different safety and health needs. And you need to be able to customize those solutions. So I, I think when you go into a new organization or have a new assignment, you've got to learn who your stakeholders are, what their needs are, and then be able to tie in the safety and compliance aspects to that. I would say that, that it's extremely important to understand what safety actually is. Safety is a rather nebulous word. And if you think about it, safety is only verifiable in historic terms. You can only tell I've been safe for this amount of period and I hope I'll be safe going forward. I hope the environment supports me being safe going forward and doing whatever work I'm doing. But that's where the risk factors uh, come into play. And in terms of risk, risk is always put into like a, some kind of um, percentage thing of, of uh, similar to, um, I had to say this, pre uh, predicting the weather. It's somewhat uncertain in those terms. It's more certain in terms of working with equipment. It's less certain in terms of working with uh, human behaviors. Human behaviors, the, the risk of something happening, if say it's one in 10,000 times that somebody does this, well, that doesn't really tell you whether it's one in 10,000 for everybody on the world doing it, everybody in your workplace doing it. Um, it doesn't give you the, the scope and it doesn't tell you 
how the environment is impacting their behavior. The, the risk factors typically in most organizations don't change, although the stress factors do. The stress factors are going to impact how well people can behave. So when you're thinking about providing safety training, the training itself isn't a barrier to something bad happening. It's the behavior that the safety, that the training provides or instills in somebody that's the barrier. So if they go through the training, it's the wrong training, a soft target from what, what would actually uh, have, a, have a benefit to a particular um, area of work, then it's not gonna do its job. If it is on target, but the environment stresses people so much that they behave differently than the, the training would guide them to behave, then it's not going to work. So there's a lot of factors involved, and it's not just put people in a class, check the box, and everything's fine. Great. Well, thank you, uh, Bridget Wilder of the City of Memphis and Fred Stawitz of Kinder Morgan for joining us today on The Business of Learning. Our pleasure. Thank you. And for show notes for this episode, uh, including all the resources we mentioned today and a sneak peek of our research series on the role of learning and development in risk management, visit us at trainingindustry.com slash trainingindustrypodcast. And uh, of course, we'd appreciate your thoughts on this episode and on the podcast series. Um, send a note to us. We can be reached at info at trainingindustry.com. And uh, we do hope you're enjoying the business of learning. If you are, uh, please take a minute to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you have feedback about this episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future program, email us at info at or use the contact us page at trainingindustry.com. Thanks for listening to the Training Industry Podcast.